Welcome to the Strong Enough Podcast, your relationship wellness podcast. I'm your host, Claudia. Today's guest is going to share with us how her work as a physical therapist led her to better understand chronic pain. She's going to talk about the emotional component and what you can do to make it better. Please help me in welcoming Dr. Tawny Cross. Tawny, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? I am well. Thank you for having me here. Thank you for being here. I do want to point out we learned uh, when we first met that we had a bit of a geographical connection. You live in the city where I went to high school, Durham, North Carolina. How do you like it there? I really, really do enjoy it. It has been a bit of a shift because I moved from California. And for me, I will always be a California girl. Um, But if it comes to comparing San Diego of the West Coast, I think Durham is a very nice San Diego East Coast. (laughs) I love hearing that. How are you enjoying the hot and humid summers in the area? That was the biggest adjustment. Um, When I came here, I actually thought that summers were supposed to be just like it was in San Diego, but it was actually raining a lot here. And I learned very quickly that my view of what the world should be was not California. (laughs) (laughs) And and I have to ask this question for any sports fans out there. Mm -hmm. Are you a Tar Heel or a Blue Devil? I'm a Blue Devil, unfortunately, for those that are... (laughs) (laughs) Well, the good news is we can continue the conversation. I too am a blue devil. Uh, For all you Tar Heels out there, you know, we all make mistakes. It's okay. It's okay. Well, Tawny, other than where you are now and that you are the right sports fan, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, So I am a physical therapist. Um, I uh, got my doctorate in 2013 and I started working at the Veterans Affairs Hospital in Durham. And it was very shortly there that I kind of realized I was making headway with a certain group of people, people who just kind of had straightforward orthopedic injuries, but there was just this huge population of um, complex chronic pain people that I was not able to really see uh, much change. And for a while, I was just like, well, you know, it's just probably because they're not doing their exercises and um, more, I guess, putting the onus on them. Um, And then I realized very uh, shortly that I had to make a decision. I either had to keep on um, allowing it to be as it was where people were not going to make those gains. And I would about, I would have maybe about 25, 35, which for me was a lot percent of the people that I work with just not really ever make that change, or I had to shift how I thought and evolve with the process. And so now I have found myself to be a chronic pain specialist um, where I work. And I, I'm kind of surprised. <laughs> I, could, I actually really enjoy what I do, which is interesting because you'll find that a lot of people, when they talk about chronic pain, they, they get burned out with it pretty quickly. Um, they, they don't know what to do with it because it's such a tough population. And because of that, I think there's like, well, you know, either it's not working and these people are tiring and I got to stop. I just keep on doing what I'm doing kind of like I thought before. Um, But yeah, I really, really enjoy working with this population. I love hearing that because I have had issues with chronic pain for a big stint of my life now and I want to talk to you a little bit about or or have you educate us a little bit about some of the different types of chronic pain because I think sometimes when we think about it you know we think of that old back injury which is chronic pain but sometimes we forget about chronic illness and invisible illness chronic pain so will Mm -hmm. you talk a little bit about the different kinds of chronic pain that people might experience yeah so I think what's important here is actually to be able to break pain down as a whole um, because it is actually a very misunderstood thing Um, most people associate things with physical injury like hey if you have a rotator cuff tear or um I don't know, an ankle sprain, you have to have something that shows up with physical pain. Um, And what we know is that's not the case. And it's not even 
a, a fluke kind of incident or an outlier. So um, 40% of the population, for example, if you take like an image of their body, their, their spine, their, their shoulder, whatever, and it'll show up with maddening things like knee arthritis and um, degenerative disc disease is a common one you'll hear about or bulging disc, herniated disc, and these people have no pain. And that's 40% at least, so almost half of the population. Um, so if physical injury doesn't quite match up or correlate with the amount of pain, then really what pain is, is a good question, Claudia. Um, so I like to break into three different types. One is nociceptive pain. Nociceptive pain is more corresponding with tissue injury. So if you did have a rotator cuff tear, these are the type of people that if they went to physical therapy um, or surgery, they would um, get better from a couple exercises and then be well on their way. Or they may have no pain at all. And they just have those anatomical differences and just get along with their life. Um, then there's they're what they call neuropathic pain, which is to say that the nerves localized to the area are irritated and painful and sensitized. And then it's uh, the next word is central sensitization, although the newer term is called nociplastic pain. And it just means that at that point in time, your entire nervous system is amped up. And it's um, you can say it's almost like oversensitized Um and a very common analogy that people use is if you if you have a smoke alarm and it starts to ring, um, ideally, it's just ringing if you have a fire. But we know that most people, they don't have that sort of smoke alarm. It beeps if you're baking cookies. Um, but that's what's happening is that your system is starting to beep even though you're just baking cookies. You're you know bending forward, touching your toes. If you have back pain and your alarm is screaming. Um, and that is the type of pain that is the most complex and difficult to treat because it is very, very much not about tissue injury anymore. Even if you have um, some anatomy stuff that's kind of funky, it's more about the whole sensitivity of the system. I really love the analogy that you used, and it does seem like you have been to my house because we have a ridiculously sensitive smoke alarm, and you just open the oven, and, and it's going. I may have... I may have moved it farther away from the kitchen. Let's talk about what can cause these types of pain. So, so the pain that where you're just oversensitized, basically, and you're baking cookies and your, or your alarm is going off, what causes that or what can cause that? So the way that I describe it is it's, it's, it sounds like a, I don't know, easy answer, but it's pretty much anything. Um, because if we're not looking at our bodies just like, flesh bags, because none of us are hopefully flesh bags. <laughs> At least I'm not. Um, so, if we're not just flesh bags, we're interacting with the greater environment. We're interacting sociologically. So, um, our relationships, our culture, our economics, um, our education. And then there's the psychological stuff, which is, um, you know, do you have anxiety, depression, um, PTSD? Um, and for a lot of my vets, um, it's military sexual trauma um, or the PTSD and the military sexual trauma can be related. So it's what they call the biological, psychological, and social or biopsychosocial bio model of pain. Um, and what is happening is that your brain, which is 100% of the time, the producer of pain. And when I say that, I always like to say it with a caveat because a lot of people hear that and they think that I mean that their pain is imaginary, which is 100% of the time not true. <laughs> if you feel any pain at all, it is very, very physical, very, very real, but it is also 100% of the time produced by the brain. So if you have, let's say, an ankle sprain, um, but at the same time you sprain your ankle, a bus comes out of your way and is about to hit you, your brain has to make a split-second decision. It has to decide whether or not to save you from your ankle sprain or save you from the bus, even though the bus, the bus has not yet hit you. So what it does, it says, okay, so I'm going to use all my chemicals to shut down any signal I might be getting from the ankle. So you'll run like a linebacker and get away from that bus and you will look as if you've not had any sprain at all. And then when the bus moves away, then your brain might turn on the pain signals. So when we're working with that brain that is evaluating just kind of 
what threats are in your system um, or what threats are coming into your system, it is looking at literally everything. It's like, okay, what are the relationships that I see that might be potentially a threat or harming me? Um, What are the anxiety, depression, what things that I'm putting in my body? So if it's evaluating all these things at once, and it determines that there is a great enough threat at some point in time, something's going to just overflow your cup of stuff that you have to handle. And that's usually when people will start to notice that if they have an injury or no injury at all, there are small things that start to sensitize the system. Like, um, And you'll start to notice what they call uh, non-mechanical um, signs of pain. So weather changes and you're like, oh, like the cold front's coming in. I am more sensitive than a, you know, or better interpreting the weather than someone who studied the weather, like the meteorologists <laughs> or yeah, stress chemical changes. Like if you have increased stress or increased negative emotions in your life, you'll notice that these will set off or at least amplify your pain, even if you um, have a physical origin of the pain. That is so interesting to me. And I want to back up a second where you talked about a lot of the people that you deal with that deal with this type of pain are uh, survivors of PTSD and military sexual trauma. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that a lot of sexual assault victims and domestic violence victims or survivors can experience higher incidence of chronic pain. So, can you talk a little bit about why that is and and what our brains are doing to make that happen? Yeah. um, So, as you know, for, for I would say, I think it's easier to start with just like the PTSD piece. Um, so when you're in a place where, let's say, physical injury occurred, like um, an IED blast, right, or whatever else, not only do you have the potential for physical injury, um, you may not, like you might be just at the edge of the IED blast, um, but you're also just flooded with an enormous amount of stress chemicals trying to keep you in survival. Now, stress chemicals are awesome because they actually help you perform better. People always look at stress as like their enemy, like, oh, stress is bad, stress is bad. And it it can be in the inappropriate situations, but it can also help you survive. Um, so when your body is flooded with stress chemicals, um, then it is helping you survive then and there. And ideally, you should be able to leave that scenario and your tissues recover and then your nerves should calm down and recover too. But that does not happen with people who experience a very traumatic incident like um, military sexual trauma. In fact, I think the statistics are at least half of the people of women rather who experience um, military sexual trauma that's associated with their PTSD. Um, so what we know about that is there's a combination of stress chemicals and the physical injury that can potentiate or make those make that pain longer lasting. You can almost say that that um, that that physical memory is burned into the system. Um, and also, what we see too is that longer term stuff. If you've got longer term stress, it prevents a lot of things that allow you to recover, like sleep at night, for instance. Um, Ideally, what should happen is as you go to sleep, your stress chemicals should drop down to zero. And so when the stress chemicals drop down to zero, when you have dreams or old memories or memories rather, they should be reprocessed to your old memory bank, which is your hippocampus. But people who have PTSD, they actually continue to produce stress chemicals at night. So instead of having this low level of stress chemicals that will move that memory to an old memory, instead it keeps it alive and you end up having flashbacks and um, living living nightmares. Um, And it never really relocates away from that emotional memory bank. So every t- every time you move through the day, it's it's as if you're reliving it again and again. And so it doesn't remove that stain of that memory that you you know used to have way back in the day. We're like, oh my gosh, it was a really stressful thing. But after I slept it off, it was perfectly fine. Um, so that's what we know is happening: is that the emotional brain is basically keeping not just the emotional pieces alive, it also keeps the physical pieces also alive. What first drove you to work with veterans initially? Um, 
I think it was kind of a, a lucky <laughs> circumstance because I, I worked there as a, a resident or a student. And, um, and I think it was just a really, really good experience just to be able to see um, just the complexity. And I think it was very exciting to be like, yeah, like I have time and space. Because what's cool about the, the VA is oftentimes compared to the civilian population, you get to have an hour with the patient um, and you get to really get to know them. Um, and I think that that freedom, that independence um, excited me um, and just the complexity of the cases. Um, yeah, that was that was the beginning. And then afterwards, it was just continuing to grow with where I am. And it sounds like you really have done that in the strides that you've made to connect the emotional trauma and physical pain. What would you say to the people who there's so many out there, you know, who think they're crazy or who've even been told they're crazy um, because of the pain they're experiencing that isn't necessarily related to physical? Now, we know they're not crazy. um, And you talked a little bit about how the brain works. But what do you say to those people initially when you see them? So... I think what I usually do, I, I have to get a fair read of where they are because some of them are super receptive. Um, you'll, you'll hear it kind of in their voices where, um, like I had an example, I had a, uh, someone who came in last week and he was kind of, he was definitely the guy that like when he listened, he did not want to hear what I wanted to share with him. Because what does happen too is when people are in a state of threat, right? Because if you if you have PTSD, everything is a threat. I could smile at you and you could read it like a smirk, right? So your brain is kind of in that protective danger, danger, danger state, which makes it more likely to produce pain. So that I could give him that same message, but his wife was like, I get it. And she was like pulling out metaphors and analogies trying to explain it to her husband. <laughs> so you have to um, read where they are. Um, and oftentimes it's helpful to, to do an examination first, um, to, to kind of show them like I've, I've done my work, I've read through your chart, we've examined you, these are the reasons why um, you're experiencing um, what you do. And the, and the good thing about it is most people really do want to know why they hurt. They want to know why they hurt and they want to know what they can do to get better. Um, and if you set that message up in such a way that one, it validates them and says, hey, I hear you, you're in pain. And you you might even set up the fact that, hey, if you're starting to feel shut down or whatever, if you're blanking out because you're, you're starting to hear a message from me that is not what I intend, please let me know because that means we're not on the same page. And that means I need to be more clear or I need to be more sensitive um, or whatever that is. And um, I think for the most part, like 90, 95% of the time when you are validating and you're clear um, and you're really engaging with them, um, they hear that message better. Now, I don't want to get into gender generalities, but (laughs) would you say that men or women are less receptive when you talk about it's in your head, but it's not all in your head? Um, I cannot say I see a specific consistency overall um i do see that the ones that are that have been told that more often are more likely to hear that no matter how my i explain to them and oftentimes they are women and they are the ones that have experienced um, military sexual trauma they have this second victimization kind of thing going on where they, they try to explain their story and they get invalidated, they get hurt by the system again. So um, when people don't trust you, they are right from the go, you're already kind of coming off from an uneven footing. So I think I see that just a hint more around the women, but I, I would say um, just as much the men and actually the statistics, at least in 2009 for, for a military sexual trauma, I think, um, I believe women 60% and men were at 40%, so it's nearly half. Um, so that's, that's also an interesting statistic, which I was surprised to see too. What percentage of your population do you believe has been a victim of sexual assault? I would say at least half, but granted, my, 
my clinic is specifically designed for people with complex chronic pain. So I, I'm not the best representation of that if you're comparing it for the rest of my colleagues. Um, but as far as I know, from what I read in the statistics, it's at least half. Um, uh, I think, sorry, one out of four people report military sexual trauma, but the Department of Defense in 2009 said that um, they suspect 80% are underreported. So it's pretty high. Yeah, and I can definitely see that. I mean, we see the same thing, generally speaking, with sex assault and domestic violence, very Mm -hmm. underreported. And I would imagine it's even more so in the military. Mm -hmm. What does it feel like for you now, kind of once you made that shift of, okay, I can either keep going and get frustrated and burned out, or I can really dig deeper and figure out what's going on with these people and actually help them. What was that shift like for you? I think it was actually pretty eye-opening because I think I was at the time just looking for a better way that I could do something so that I didn't feel like I failed (laughs) at helping these people. Um, But then when I started to go through certifications to learn um, more about pain, become a therapeutic pain specialist, the more that information I learned about pain science um, and what is actually going on the system, the more I was just like, whoa, this is intense stuff. And I found myself becoming more and more drawn to who people were. Because I think even though they try to do a pretty good job in in school, I think they're shifting a little bit to be better about like learning to be with the patient. I think I just still saw people for the most part as like body parts. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, like why aren't these things going, getting better? So I think it really allowed me to connect, um, on an emotional level, like with their struggles, like who they were. Um, and interestingly, if I, I was thinking about this um, before we, we met today, kind of why maybe I might've connected also deeper too. And it may not have been why, but I realized, because when you brought up the whole domestic abuse piece, and I actually, I saw um, at least a couple of your podcasts too. So I, I'm a little familiar with your story. And I was like, you know what? I am actually a survivor of domestic abuse. (laughs) And I didn't make that connection because for me, it really is an old memory. Uh It was way back in college, but I was speaking to my husband about it. And I was like, you know how I've talked about that one relationship that I had? And he's like, yeah. I was like, you remember when I described it and I talked about how there was like the physical and the emotional abuse? And he's like, yeah. I'm like, I don't think I've ever called myself like a domestic abuse survivor. It just didn't feel like it's something that fit who I thought I was. Um, and I know that people sometimes don't claim that identity mm-hmm. because they're, they're worried about the shame or whatever. But for me, it was more like, because it's like an old memory, like that's just mm-hmm. feels like something so distant and not me. Um, and yeah, so I, I was wondering how much of that actually played into how I'm able to connect to the people I, I serve nowadays. So maybe it was your subconscious kind (laughs) of leading you. Well, since you brought that up, first Mm -hmm. off, thank you for sharing that. That's that's a big deal. So I really appreciate your sharing. What do you think in your life gave you the ability to kind of just put that behind you and never really identify like that just happened and it's gone and it's a it's a memory that got filed away in the right file cabinet of your brain versus people who don't? Um, I would say there was probably a series of things. It probably wasn't just one thing. Um, But I definitely had really good support systems in place. Um, And that probably made for at least half of the differences. I was... um, I was with people that, that could guide me emotionally. Um, and I think it also, there was a spiritual component, spiritual component to it too, um, where I, I really just felt uplifted and just, and I think there was a part of, I also feel like there was a lot of growing already in that college level period. I, I think mm-hmm. I still saw myself as, as really, really quite young and just not mm-hmm. really thinking things through. Um, but there was definitely, I think I used to look down at myself though. I do remember thinking that when I was younger, I'm like, Oh, just everything felt like I had a, everything was guilt. Everything was shame. Mm-hmm. And one of my friends looked at me one time. She's like, you know, 
if you spend so much time like looking down, you never really have the ability to look up. And I'm like, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> and it, I mean, maybe it sounded kind of cheesy, but it was, it was part of what like really sh- like shook me. Like, yeah, you know, why, why am I letting myself like beat, I beat myself up for something that I couldn't really have done anything differently except for maybe look to my older self and ask for guidance, but you know, who can do that? I was going to say, if all of us could do that, we would, most of us would be in very different situations at that young age. So I totally understand it. I know we aren't going to talk about any patients in particular, but I would love to hear, generally speaking, some of the different kind of techniques that you use for patients who are dealing with chronic pain and where you have established an emotional or traumatic component to that? Um, Yeah. So I would say there's much more on mind-body techniques. We have things like guided imagery, hypnosis, mindfulness. And I would say mindfulness kind of takes precedent above all things because what we do know about um, about the fact that when you have something traumatic is that you kind of want to avoid the memory, right? You are, you are ashamed of it. You're trying to not think about it. And, you know, who really wants to spend time like being embedded with like terrible, terrible memories? Um, but it is actually super, super important to process through. Um, and I think I heard a, a really good metaphor for this one. It's, it's kind of like having like a huge bunch of stinky fish dumped into your yard or into your driveway rather. And if you had two tons of it, you know, you had two choices. You, have to, you can either stay away from it, stay in your house, um, which is fine because it, you know, it doesn't get into your house, but eventually it will, the rot, the fermenting and all that stuff, or you can take the fish out. Now, if you let, if you let it sit for a long time, there's no way you can do that without having protective equipment. You know, no, uh, you need the hazmat suit and everything. Otherwise, if you go and take it out, you're going to faint. And most people might go to the edge of it without the protective equipment. And then they'll be like, no, 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 this is terrible. But when you finally have like the hazmat suit and you go towards the fish and you take it out, you can finally move out of your driveway and go where you want to go. So mindfulness grounding techniques give gives you that ability to start moving things away and clearing the system, moving things into your old memory bank so it stays an old memory and not a new one. It sounds like some of this, I mean, the mindfulness is something people could start doing on their own. Can you talk a little bit about what are some good ways for people who are anti, we have a lot of people out there who are anti-therapist altogether. (laughs) So what can they do to start helping themselves as we work with them on getting them to be pro-therapist or at least not anti? Yeah. (laughs) So I think the answer to that is I am going to guess there's a huge trust issue. Like, and people not only stay away from therapists and doctors, really, mm-hmm. like, like you, you come in for like, you know, your medicine and you don't want to get out of there. Um, I have a lot of people that come in. They're just like, I don't like being here. They're like, I'm starting to like you a little bit, but I don't like anything else. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's a huge trust issue. And, and that's okay. Because if you've been burned by the system, sometimes it's really hard to come out of your box. Um, but what is important is that there are people who do know what that's like and um, having them like do a little research on the type of therapist that you're seeing. Um, and that will start to guide you a little bit that way. Like whatever you need to do to research and trust who you're seeing. Um, and sometimes it's like, if you start to do with virtual stuff, right. You're not being there in person. That is an easy kind of graded exposure to a therapist. But if you're, if you're kind of just, hell-bent on being you and healing um, that way, that's also possible too. There are plenty of people who like, post courses online um, and who post mindfulness techniques um, to be able to work on, on your own. And as you start to visit these mindfulness techniques, and that actually starts to allow you to gain, gain space, gain presence, to be able to look at things on a more objective level, because when you're making that decision not to trust somebody, it is coming from a place of an old, 
older, but still kind of current memory, right? You have trust things like that have occurred, um, but mindfulness allows you to gain that space. So the way that I describe it to people, because um, a lot of people have this idea of what mindfulness is. And um, I think I wrote recently, mindfulness isn't what you think. And it's also not what you not think, <laughs> but it is observing what you think like a curious cat. So you are, if you're, if you're like watching a uh, something on TV, right, and you see something happen, um, like someone is in a car accident, for instance, you kind of have like this gut reaction in the beginning, like, ooh, that's like terrible. I feel terrible to be that person, but you're, but you're observing from the outside in. That's kind of what observing is like. You're, you're observing and you can feel to some extent what that person is feeling, but you're not getting sucked down by the story. So um, you're allowing yourself to feel those things. And the things that you're allowing, by the way, means that you're not avoiding. And when you're not avoiding, that means that your pain is learning that thing doesn't have to be avoided and not dangerous. And therefore, it doesn't have to produce pain. Um, but yeah, so when you're allowing, you're also coming from a place of like neutrality. You're like, okay, like I'm allowing this. Um, and if you have that ability, then you can finally realize, hey, maybe the things that I'm, I'm thinking is coming from this thing, right? But you, but you can't know that until you practice the technique of mindfulness. I want to start with the fact that you brought up virtual therapy, and that would be a great option. I agree with you that that would be a great option. I also think maybe you could be the person that can help me because a couple <laughs> episodes ago, we had a discussion um, with my guest about therapist tender. And so people could, you know, swipe through and rate therapists and, and swipe left and right. And we had this whole conversation because neither of us were very sure which way is a good swipe <laughs> and which way is a bad swipe. Um, I still don't know, but I want you to think about that because I think this therapist tender could be something. So just, you know, that's a pretty, that sounds like a pretty winning app, <laughs> right? If I could develop apps, I, I would do it, but let's talk after. <laughs> I want to hit on a topic that you kind of mentioned there about your brain realizing that it doesn't have to be afraid of something anymore. I know that you have talked a lot about pain, a lot of times stemming from fear of pain. So will you talk a little bit about that and what we can do to try to quiet that fear? Yeah. Um, so the biggest one is is pretty easy to do, but also kind of a lot of information is gaining what we call pain neuroscience education. And it's um, what is that HP Lovecraft, Lovecraft quote? Like if you fear like the fear of the unknown is like the greatest and oldest fear of all. And a lot of the times people have pain, it's because they don't know what's going on. So they immediately assume I have this pain. Um, I I have to figure out what it is and fix it. Right. And if the brain thinks that, sees that, then it's going to want to get a physical fix and it will be frustrated that it's not gaining from the physical fix. And um, then it will continue to feed into that pain cycle. So as you start to learn more and more about what pain is and gathering kind of the evidence of, you know what, actually, my physical pain doesn't make sense. Why should my pain be there when I'm just sitting there? <laughs> If you're, if you're sitting there, if you're um, walking two feet to the bathroom and you still have pain, or if you're washing dishes and you have pain, then those are indications that, hey, this is pain that is hurting, but not harmful. And um, part of reinforcing that it is hurting, but not harmful is teaching the brain. Because I know it sounds like it's a little confusing. It's like, isn't, isn't my brain me? Uh, <laughs> but there are just like in mindfulness, there are a million different parts of you. Like right now, as you and I are talking, there's a part of you that's responding to me. There's a part of you that's um, um, also like thinking about oh, how do I make sure this podcast is going out? Well, like are my dogs in the corner about to yell, you know, yep, yep, whatever. So there are a million different parts of you that are going on and the subconscious pieces include those as well as the things that we don't want to think about. Like, do we think about breathing to keep ourselves alive? No, that that's operated for you. Your heart beating. Those are all subconscious things that are brain driven. Um, 
And if you start to get into conscious repetition of, hey, like hurt doesn't equal harm, this is safe to do, um, then your subconscious brain at some point in time starts to get that message because we know that the brain learns by experience, association, repetition. Um, So repetition, even if you don't fully buy into the idea or believe the idea just at the beginning with repeated effort, the subconscious brain starts to get into it too. And you're just like, okay, well, actually, I didn't used to believe that, but there's a part of me that's starting to get into it now. Um, so there's a physical repeti- uh, repetition of it. There's um, learning more about pain. Um, and then there's starting to do the practice of mindfulness because it, it does bring that sense of neutrality um, that will allow you to, to start to be able to feel the things that you feel um, without dismissing them, trying to avoid it, change it. Um, and that's that's where I think analogy here for me um, is is like with an allergy shot, right? If you get an allergy shot, you're getting an allergen introduced to the system. If you get the allergen introduced often enough and you ramp it up, then you start to be able to finally, you know, go out into the world without sneezing. Um, but if you run headlong into a meadow of pollen, you're going to have an allergy attack. So you need to have some measure of exposure, but not too much of it and gradually build that up over time. I love that analogy. I think I saw that where you posted it recently and talked about the allergy shot. So that's very cool to, to hear that again and really have that sink in. I also really love that hurt doesn't necessarily equal harm. And I think that is really important for people to remember What would you say to people who are supporting, so whether it's an intimate relationship, a family relationship, a friendship, to people who are supporting those who are dealing with chronic pain? Um, so I say it to the family members or say it to the Mm, person? To the, well, we can go both. You can, you can talk to everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Um, to the family members, I think. I think there's a lot of ways that could go because sometimes you have people who are enabling um, people who are just like, okay, this person's hurting. So I have to do everything for them. Um, and that is really wonderful. Um, it is going to burn them out, um, make them feel maybe sometimes resentful. Um, and it's also not helpful in the long term because you're you're not really teaching that person to be able to grow and adapt the system because the only way that the brain can rewire um, and we know that actually that is a fact that people with chronic pain is, isn't actually forever pain you can completely heal from it because the brain is plastic and rewirable um, so if you want that to happen though there has to be active changes involved where the person is starting to get themselves that pain allergy shot where they're mm-hmm. exposing gently into the pain. Um, and that's not going to happen if they're always reliant on other people or um, other medication or massages or chiropractors or even physical therapists. Like they go to PT so that they someone can watch them exercise or whatever. Um, so I would say that is one thing to think about um, is making sure you're not fitting that rule. Um, but you also want to be super understanding. One of the things I, I think in general, um, I know that a lot of people with chronic pain want is to be understood. They, they, um, they feel like they're lonely, right? Kind of in that same depression zone. Like you might be with other people, but you still feel isolated. You still feel lonely. You don't feel understood. You, you don't know how to explain yourself. Um, and to be heard, I think it comes with really understanding. So for everybody should really should get to get in bed with pain science and, and know what that is, because that will really help with knowing what is happening, that it's not just the physical thing that will be affected. They're not just in pain. It affects the whole system. They're going to have issues with sleeping, with brain fog, um, with just kind of like emotional dysregulation, mood disorders. There's so many things that affect people with chronic pain. Um, and if you, if you know that and, you know, you don't just write it off to like, oh, you just need to be stronger or no pain, no gain, <laughs> then you're going to be that much more closer with that person who needs to feel understood. Um, and that is also part of that healing process. Love that. So you have talked a lot about wellness in general. 
Um, I, I think I might know what this is going to be, but what would your top piece of wellness advice be to the audience? Wellness advice. Um, so wellness advice, that's an interesting question. Um, I'm curious to know actually what you think it's going to be. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, I figured it was going to somehow revolve around mindfulness because it seems like it's important for all of us to do that and, and get in touch with that side where we're observing and not necessarily being in the moment or in the situation. Yeah, um, I would agree. And actually, it is kind of a strange thing for me to say because it took me a long time to actually like mindfulness as well because I'm a big doer. I, I love to multitask and do a million things at once. And mindfulness, ba basically, you have to be, it's kind of like a non-doing thing, even though you're doing lots of things. Um, and just being present, like your mind has to be uniquely just like on one type of thing. So if you're if you're driving, you should be noticing that just that you're driving, like, oh, there's a white car and there's a red car, there's a blue car. And that for me is like, I need to attend to a million things at once. Um, but everybody does mindfulness, just as everybody does actually hypnosis, right? So um, I'm not sure if, you, if you've heard much about hypnosis, but it's, it's, it's trance, right? And trance is essentially when you're in a focused state. So if you've ever... Um, you know, driven and you're like, whoa, I just missed my exit. That's actually people in trance. So people are in it all day long, in and out of it all day long. Mm -hmm. But um, why I think you're absolutely right that mindfulness has become such a strong practice is because um, it, it really takes you from a place of reactivity to responding, Um and actually, if I were to go back to kind of how I creeped out of my my domestic abuse relationship was I noticed that there was that part of me that was there. And, you know, like most people like they they get roped into um, I, th I think you, you described it one time as like a grooming thing mm -hmm. where like you're you're you just believe these things that are being told. But when you're in trance, you're actually more connected to yourself. You're um, you're more in tune, which with people with um, chronic pain, they actually try to dis disassociate. They try to move and push and avoid. So they lose connection with their self. And then with emotional pain, I would say you kind of do a little bit of that too. So when you start to get involved in mindfulness, you're becoming either mindfully aware or present or whatever you'd like to call it. And I remember hearing these parts of my thoughts and I was like, what? are you thinking like what is going on in this situation like I couldn't quite conceptualize and that was the observing part of me it's like it was just like observing while the other part of me was just kind of like going along with things so people have that to them and I think it's just you have to take a moment to realize that that's there and to start listening to that observing self and I think um this is maybe not really answering your question here but I remember you talking about the word why and you know people, people asked like mm -hmm that it would be kind of judgy if you said like, why are you with this guy or whatever? And I thought it was actually an interesting thing to bring up because um, you're right. It does sound judgy. Um, and I wonder if it would be different if there was one, if they, besides the mindfulness stuff, which we already know brings you to a place of neutrality um, is the word what and how, because if you approached it like, Hey, what are the reasons you're with him? And what are the reasons you're not? that brings non-judgment and mindfulness is about non-judgment. So asking things in that way, helping people be mindful and reflect so they don't hear that word of why are you with that guy versus what are the reasons you're with that guy? I think that sounds different, maybe not always, but it can. Um, that would be one way you can start reflecting on wellness. I do love that. And I think it really is more of a motivational interviewing technique of talking with somebody and trying to get that information versus judgy. So I love that. I think what and how I love yeah. it. Yes. Make them your best friends. <clears throat> That's right. What and how are my best friends? <laughs> Tell me your top piece of relationship advice. Ah, my top piece of relationship advice. Um, so it would definitely be to start to, um, I mean, with, 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 uh, personal relationships, like, like dating relationships or I'm going to let you pick. <laughs> okay. 
Um, I think it's going to come with trying to ask the question, is this person, do I like this person for who or he or she is and what they do versus how they make me feel because feelings i i love feelings i think feelings are important you should feel your feelings but i also feel like you have both for a reason and we tend to get into relationships um with feet with the feels all the feels Uh um and not enough of the the thinking pieces um so i am going to uh probably my husband won't like this, but I'm using him as an, as a, an <laughs> example. <laughs> I, I'm sure he won't watch this. With it. Um, is that he and I actually, I actually had a long distance relationship until we got married. Um, so we were like, you know, so Southern California, Northern California away. And then later on, we were like one and a half hours away. And then we finally like got married and moved together. Um, and so I actually got to know him really well through my friends. And it wasn't just like the super, because I feel like even if you relied on your friends to, to give you um, feedback, some people are just not great mm-hmm. about like, they're like, oh yeah, he seems like a great guy. But it was, it was obvious for me that he was not just a good guy. He was serving my friends and he, he specifically found like the, the ones that were really, really close to me. And he was always helping them out, like washing dishes and like taking care of them because he couldn't help me. So it was more about his heart for serving. And it was present even when I wasn't there. He wasn't just showboating or doing whatever. So, and, and that was who he was. And he still does that now. Like he, if we have like a friend that is like, you know, in the hospital, he's like, oh, we should do this. I'm like, wow, that's really considerate. I would have thought about doing that. So, so who he is. And I think that, that captured me more than like what he made me feel about myself or how I felt about him. I mean, that came, um, but it was definitely more about that. And um, it also helps. I don't think that everybody can find this person um, because I do think that they're rare, but he's kind of got like a, a secret superpower for, <laughs> for, for knowing about other people. Mm-hmm. It's like super scary. Like he'll, he'll meet people for like, 30 seconds and then like later he'll walk up to me and you just describe everything that's that's going on i'm like you just met them how do you know and then the people that know know them well they'll be like that's eerily accurate so if you find someone that's intuitive he can he usually is (laughs) you can find someone that can help you be like no that person is a creep that person is not a creep Yeah. And he do that with lottery tickets. And, uh, <laughs> no, I want him to apply that too, but he's not good at doing things to himself or uh, on an objective level. It's only with other people's relationships. Could he give <laughs> me the lottery numbers? That Just work on that. Um, we have talked about some really cool stuff today. Um, getting in bed with pain science. I want to wrap it up with something a little more lighthearted. As I told you, I have a lot of tattoos. Mm -hmm. Um, I love tattoos. I'm wearing long sleeves today, so you can't see any of my tattoos because I try to keep it a little profesh, so no face or neck tattoos. Not going there. No judgment to people that have them, but not for me. Mm -hmm. Now, you don't have any tattoos, which is fine. We still love you. Because you're, you're still a blue devil. Mm-hmm. But tell me, if you had to get a tattoo, what would it be? So, I think it probably would be something spiritual. Um, I have not gotten anything because I haven't found, like, the one thing that I'm like, you know what? I want that on my body for the rest of my life. Um, I will say, though, that uh, some of the things my older sister has put on her body because she she's the only one of us that has tattoos um i have enjoyed and liked um she's she's picked like a chinese poem that runs on the side of her her um her which i think is supposed to be quite painful as Mm -hmm. as far as i'm Mm -hmm. told yep um but the the one that i like the best of hers um she's got four stars because there's well there's four of us and she calls them her sisters (laughs) Um, so I would, I would say something that connects maybe with my sisters and something on the spiritual side is what I would get. Um, but I also like to tell people that anytime people talk to me about tattoos, I almost always think of potatoes. (laughs) 
and it, and it sounds random, but there's, there's a, there's a book that um, I read when I was a kid. It's called like wayside stories is falling down or something. I don't know if anybody remembers that. And this kid comes in he's like, Oh yeah, I get to get a tattoo. And he's like in fourth grade. And they're like, Oh wow. Get a dragon, get a blah, blah, blah. And then the next day he shows up to school and then they're like, what'd you get? He's like, I got a potato. And then they're like, why? He's like, I like potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> so that's all I ever think about. So I might actually end up getting potato one day. <laughs> I would love that if <laughs> you ever got a potato tattoo. Um, <laughs> and my first tattoo happened in Durham and is covered up now. So I totally relate to you saying I haven't found the thing that I want on my body for the rest of my life. I don't know if it's a potato, but maybe... I mean, they are very versatile. Yes. It, it could look like a mole. <laughs> I mean, it could be a French fry. It could, it could be. Oh, that's true. It could be all gratin. I mean, there's a lot mm. of options here. Yeah. Potatoes are really good and can be in anything. I and agree. on skin. So, it, could be, it could be a potato skin. <laughs> yes. Yes. Like a loaded one with bacon. <laughs> Now I'm hungry. <laughs> Tawny, where can people find you if they would like to maybe learn more about pain science, follow you to hear more of your talking about chronic pain and get your advice? Um, so they can always find me on my Instagram. That's usually where I post the most things. And it's just Dr. Tawny Cross. Um, I think it's Dr. Tawny Cross. I don't even remember what it looks like. We'll look that um, up for you. Don't well, worry. <laughs> and then I am on my website, drtonycross.com. I have been um, in this past year, I'm willing to work with clients and I have a couple of clients now. I don't usually take on too many outside of my, my normal um, VA hospital gig, um, but I do enjoy at least educating outside and I'll take the occasional client or two. Um, and I do also have courses that I um, started this year as well. Um, I did just launch a course and they'll repeat again next year, but it is about pain science and actually um, using values to help people sort of regain their footing on like building their vision in life. Um, because that is another thing too, that I think I see is that people um, get stuck in chronic pain, get stuck in depression, and they kind of lose their focus and their way, their dreams, their aspirations and reconnecting um, people with that along with pain science is a really awesome way to rewire the brain. I absolutely love that. You can count me in for the next <laughs> rotation of that course. Tawny, thank you so much for being with me today. I truly appreciate everything that you shared. And I think our viewers and listeners are absolutely going to love it. And I hope that they have learned as much as I have. So thank you. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed being here. I really hope you guys enjoyed my conversation with Tawny as much as I did. I truly appreciate her clever analogies and her reminding us that hurt doesn't always equal harm. So remember, until next week, you are strong enough and you are worth it. Thank you for listening to the Strong Enough Podcast. You can find us on your favorite podcast platform by searching Strong Enough. And on YouTube, we're available on the Spear Talk channel. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Strong Enough Pod. If you have suggestions for an upcoming episode or a future guest, please reach out at strongenoughpod at gmail.com. Remember, you are worth it.